This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, flying around the world with no emissions. And the FAA aims for safer runways. Colorado tries to scuttle a lead report. And the gamma numbers are good, Ian. We crossed 4,000 deliveries for the first time in 10 years. That's fantastic. Also, uh, we gave away an airplane, David. We did, Ian. We're going to hear more about that. Are you ready to do some hangar talk? Let's do it. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056, turn right, heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tealis. David, lots of fun stuff to get to today. Later on, of course, one of those things is our guest. That's Dick Braun. Dick is a uh-huh. producer, filmmaker who has a big interest in flying boats and, and made a movie about them. Right on. And we're going to hear more about that. I got to meet him out in Malibu at his gallery. It's Dirk Braun, B-R-A-U-N, gallery.com, by the way. And Alicia Heron uh, did the interview. It was great. He's a really cool guy. And he's a Cessna 182 pilot as well. Okay, cool. So we'll hear from him later on. First, let's talk about Impulse. That's what a new project from the Solar Impulse folks, that's what they're calling. And the goal is to fly around the world completely on hydrogen power with zero emissions. Yeah, Bertrand Picard, who we have reported on in the past. He's a Swiss explorer. He has circumnavigated the Earth by balloon and solar-powered airplane, mm-hmm. as you mentioned. Yep, solar impulse. This is, yep. Yeah, solar impulse. So this is his next project. So, Ian, you did a little bit of reporting. I always lean on you when we talk about hydrogen-powered aircraft um, because you wrote one of the first stories that I read um, here at AOPA. What do you think about hydrogen power and circumnavigating the globe that way. Well, I think it's exciting. I mean, you know, it's kind of the only frontier that's left, right? I was thinking about that earlier about how these circumnavigation records, they've all kind of been done, right? Speed records and altitude and all that sort of thing. We don't get terribly excited about them anymore. And so really the only frontier that's left is is technology and and uh, Picard's place that's of course the solar impulse where he did it just by sun power and then this is going right. to be hydrogen and it's really good for public attention. I mean, he's based, you know, he's Swiss, he's based in Europe. They're getting European support from people like Airbus and Tahar and stuff like that. And so, obviously, climate being a big issue over there. It really is. Yeah. So, I don't know. There's lots of things to work out. You know, there are obviously commercial projects that are working on hydrogen. Basic idea being that it's, you know, kind of electric power plant driven by uh, hydrogen fuel cells. So, you know, you safely carry that much hydrogen. That's what I worry yeah. about. And how do you refill it and things exactly. like that? But 
they've already had two years of research, development, and design, and there's some heavy hitter names oh, yeah. involved in this project. Yeah. Airbus, Dyer, uh, and others. Uh, it's it's yeah, it's got some pretty uh, unique support yeah. from higher ups. Yeah, they'll do it. I mean, there's no question to me that they're going to be successful. I mean, they've been successful in the past, so. Uh, that'll be cool to watch and, and exciting to watch. I really enjoyed watching Solar Impulse. I thought it was fantastic. So uh, excited for them to do that. It was. It was really cool. And, it, and I reported a little bit on that back when I was working mainly for online. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was great. And there were updates all the time. And they had a really good website, too. So yep. very cool yep. stuff. Yep. So we want to talk a little bit about runway safety. I know, really exciting topic. Well, it's a really important topic, that's for sure. It is important. Yeah, it is. It's been a focus for the FAA in recent years. A new story that uh, Lily wrote for us about this talks, it's kind of uh, dual focused. One is the FAA did a survey about runway guard lights. Those are at the whole short line. Maybe you've seen them. And the other part of this was something I had never heard of. And one of the reasons that we want to talk about this today, and that is these AAMs. Yeah, you brought that up to me, Ian. That was really interesting. And, and we we dove into that page on the FAA site and the AAN that's the arrival alert notices, and they're at several airports with a history of misalignment risk. And by that, we mean a lot of these airports have maybe parallel runways. Um, you mentioned something mm-hmm. offline that is something also for us to look out for that are that is taxiways that are very wide taxiways yeah. that used to be runways. Used to be runways, exactly. And, and they're confusing if you're not familiar with the, the airport. And so it leads to a lot of confusion on the runway um, during approaches and really also, and we've heard about some tragic incidents on departures as well. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. um, And you and I both have some personal experience with this. So the AANs, that's really interesting. Yeah, these are cool. So like I said, I didn't even know these things were around. They're they're out there for 40 airports, presumably ones where the FAA think there's the highest risk. They basically, it's kind of a photo from final, and it identifies what the runway is, what the taxiway is, kind of what to watch out for. It's funny because, you know, a lot of times you, of course, it seems obvious, you know, when you're sitting on the ground, uh, you're like, of course, that's the runway, and of course, that's the taxiway. But you know how it is. It's like you go in some places and maybe it all, you know, we get these cues of like surface condition, right? Like we think, okay, the runway maybe is concrete. It's going to have some tire marks on it. Obviously, there's only a yellow stripe on the taxiway, but it's like, especially some of these, like I said, decommissioned runways used as taxiways. I mean, you can still see the markings of the previous runway on it. You know, they're faded out or whatever, and that can be dangerous. Yeah, it is. And uh, the FAA uses as an example Tucson runway 30 and taxiway alpha. And they are just as wide. One is just as wide as the mm-hmm. other. You could easily confuse that. That's That, to me, is something that we really need to, to think more about. You know, I learned to fly in Atlanta at Peachtree DeKalb Airport, and there were parallel runways. One was much shorter than the other and much wider. But nonetheless, it was a common theme for a pilot to say they were going to land on 
the right side runway and then they landed on the left mm-hmm. or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And, and that could lead, honestly, that could lead to some disastrous results. Yeah. But so many wrong surface events actually did, I don't know if you knew this, Ian, they occurred during the daytime hmm. and in visual meteorological conditions. You know what? It makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I guess you're right. Yeah, it makes sense because if it's IMC, you're going to have the localizer in. And if it's night, right, you're going to have point. blue lights for the taxiway and white for the runway, right? So, yeah, easier to discern. Good point. Yeah. And the pilot has read back the correct landing clearance. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and, and that, that might um, that might go more to the uh, the expectations that we get. You know, we sometimes we recite things by rote yeah. and expect a certain clearance or expect a certain runway. And we say, Roger, read it back correctly. Yeah. When really exactly. it's different instructions. Yeah. Yep, that's right. So check those out. Uh, arrival alert notices. Pretty neat. And um, if they have one for your airport or where you're going to go, more likely. I mean, if you're at your home airport, you probably know it. But if it's somewhere you're going to go, it's definitely worth just uh, giving it a quick look. Eight airports in uh, California, five in Arizona. And just before we leave, in Payne Field was a surprising one for me hmm. in, in Washington State. Yeah. So lead, we know it's an issue right now. We're trying to get the lead out of Avgas. We're all on the, we're all on board with that, right? We all know about this, right? Of course, some of the things that we're fighting now are states that are trying to they're they're jumping the gun, right? Uh-huh. So California, they used a flawed study of lead exposure as one of the bases to be able to do that. Colorado, oh my goodness, actually commissioned a lead study as well. They looked at uh, a number of different areas near GA airports and found nothing. No. Nothing. No lead exposure, no detectable lead exposure yeah. in most, many places. I think the one house that they put the sensor in, there was some very low level below EPA uh, acceptable levels. It turns out that house used to have lead paint. So there you go. And kind of the intrigue of this story is that the, the study was commissioned, finished, and then never released. Wow, that's surprising. And so the the whole aspect of having lead near an airport, well, you know, we're working to get unleaded fuel into our general aviation aircraft. And we have a deadline, 2030 is the deadline. Mm-hmm. We are demonstrating a, a Baron right now, a Beechcraft Baron with unleaded GAMI G100 fuel in one engine and regular avgas in the other. But the interesting thing that, that piqued, piqued my mind here, Ian, was that that legislation in Colorado it penalized airports that do not adopt a plan to phase out avgas by January 1st of 2026. Now, that's something that we yeah. don't agree with because we we want to adhere to the rules and regulations, but it needs to be an orderly transition yeah. and not an abrupt change. And, and this is a state that's trying to make the change versus the FAA, or am I, yeah. or am I interpreting that incorrectly? Yeah, right. I mean, so this is like, you know, study be damned. They're going to go forward doing what they want. So there was legislation introduced earlier this month that would, that's exactly right. They would it would penalize state airports who don't phase out avgas sales by 20, January 1st, 2026, because uh, basically what they'll do is take away state grant money. Right. And they would also, I love this, they would add two members, the legislation would add two members to the Colorado Aeronautical Board expressly excluding pilots. Excluding pilots, uh, Hangar yes. Talk listeners. Excluding yes. pilots, just reiterating that. And requiring that. the governor to, here we go, quote, give priority to individuals who are not trained pilots and who reside directly in the predominant flight path of a high-traffic general aviation airport or commercial airport at which there is significant general aviation activity. 
And they are going to be very anti-airport and anti-GA, you would think. I can't imagine a more blatantly anti-GA. That would have skewed group. Right. It's unbelievable. To add to the aeronautical board. Oh, my goodness. This is I'm hopefully it's destined for failure and AFPA is working really hard yes. to get this changed. Yeah, I to mean, kill this. That's yeah. one of the things that we do behind the scenes. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's one of these and it's it's you know, even if you don't live in Colorado, you're like, oh, well, whatever, maybe. But obviously, you know how that works with states. It's like one state starts something and then other states pile on. Right. It started with California. Colorado's piling on. It'll just continue. So you got to stay vigilant. And uh, like you said, that is something that AOPA does in the background. Right. All right, we'll be right back. All right, let's let's go to some good news. Gamma numbers. Love talking about these. You mentioned the intro. Great year. We we've got the year end for 2023 numbers now. It was a great year with over 4,000 GA airplanes delivered. Yeah, for the first time in a, in about 10 years. So that's good. So things are ramping up. The airplane shipments in 2023 compared to 2022 saw piston airplane deliveries increase 11.8%. So that's almost 12%. Mm-hmm. From the same uh, reporting companies, and that's interesting. It was across the board too, Ian, wasn't it? With uh, turboprops going up, piston engines going up, and even helicopters and jets going up. Yeah, in fact, I'm I'm toggling between the 22 and 23 numbers here, and that's right. I mean, single multi-piston, single multi-turboprop, business jets, piston turbine helicopters. Every segment went up. So it was it was just a fantastic year all around. P. Bunce said. In his comments that um, in addition to workforce shortages and obviously supply chain shortages, they also, you know, he feels like they would have done even better, that those pressures are still there and the backlogs are also growing. So it's overall just an incredibly positive story. And if you go through manufacturer by manufacturer, we'll hit a couple of the high points, but um, almost everybody had uh, had a good year. Almost everybody. Yeah, you and I looked at a couple of the marquee brands like we like to do. But we know Piper has been doing pretty good lately because uh, they've, they've, they've sold a bunch of airplanes to ATP and elsewhere. In 2022, they delivered 236 aircraft, and they're up to 245 in 2023. So it's about 11 more, yeah. uh, about 10 more. Yeah, uh-huh. not so bad. That's not, and don't forget, an average price of even a even a single engine airplane is probably 400, 450 grand. Yeah. So that translate, translates to a lot of money right yeah. there. Yeah, that's right. Cirrus, obviously the leader for many years in the single engine world, continues that dominance. They were, last year they delivered 629 total airplanes. Uh, this year they did, well, two years ago, 2022. Last year, 708. So a really significant jump. And and really the the biggest jump, I mean, jets, they were, my sense is with jets, they're putting them out as fast as they can. They did 90 and 22 and 96 and 23. But, man, the SR-22Ts, they went from 280 to 355. That'll yeah. boost those numbers. Well, Textron uh, hot on their heels or ahead of them, depending on how you look at it, because Textron has a huge model line. In 2022, they had 568 total deliveries. And in 2023 that jumped to 618 deliveries. So that's, mm. what, 50 more? Yeah. Yeah, almost exactly 50 more. And yeah. uh, their billings their billings went from $3.62 billion. I can't even imagine that. To uh, It's about the same, $3.62 billion. Mm. So their billings were about the same. 
but they sold more airplanes. So I guess that must mean they sold more smaller airplanes than they sold cheap airplanes, more expensive airplanes. Yeah. One down note, one of the very few was actually Icon. They went from 36 and 22 to 33 and 23. So not a not a big difference. I mean, it's almost a, you know, it's a couple units here and there. I tell you who's killing it, though, Pilatus. What are they doing so well? Yeah, they did 123 airplanes in 22. Uh-huh. And they're up to 149. I mean, they uh it's just it's just amazing. 102 PC12s went out the door. It's fantastic. That's really really yeah. good. Well, you know what? Technum is another one that you like to talk about, Ian, and they went up a little bit too. They went from 209 units delivered in 2022 to 244. Yeah. So that's, you know, 20, 30 more. That's that's looking pretty good, too. Yeah, that is good. So, yeah, it was it was really good news all around. I mean, I just think, you know, if we could uh, get some more people into aerospace, get them working and get the supply chain stuff worked out. It's like, a, yeah, I, I think everyone would feel even better about the numbers. But uh, but it has been it has been good. And I think people are feeling really good about the future. Well, it's still difficult for folks to to get a good deal on a used aircraft, too. That's true. You know, because the demand, supply and demand uh, is so great. And there's going to be one less Cessna 170B in circulation because we're going to tell our listeners about how that 170 got given away last weekend as we record this, right? Yeah. Yeah, you were there. Uh, so if, uh, if you were hoping to win the 170, if your name isn't Cliff Gursky, I'm sorry you didn't. Cliff, uh, was awarded the airplane at the Buckeye Air Fair, which, uh, was out in Arizona. And, uh, by all accounts, just a fantastic winner, a gracious guy. He is a Southwest pilot. So tell us about the ruse, David, because that's always the, you know, one of the fun parts. How did, how did we get him out there? It was really interesting. You know, our flight ops team worked really closely together with Southwest Airlines. Dave Roy, who runs our flight ops department and PIC, went to Embry-Riddle in Prescott with Mel Meadows. Mel Meadows is basically a a pilot scheduler in the Phoenix area. Hmm, Okay. And so he was Cliff's, I don't want to say that he's a supervisor, but he helps schedule things. So, um, So Mel scheduled the eventual winner, Cliff, to man a Southwest Airlines career booth during the event, you know, yeah. kind of talk to people and chat them up and all. And uh, and Cliff was thinking, well, you know, instead of flying for three days, I just have to work yeah. one day weekend. Hey, love, that's a that's, win-win. That's a great airline pilot quote right there. He was all smiles before he yeah, won. I like, mean, it's like less work. It's cool. I love it. And uh, then um, Mel escorted Cliff over to the Pilot Town Hall. Mark Baker and leadership talked a little bit about what we're doing, what the future looks like in aviation. And uh, so Cliff was in the audience for that. And then Colin Stagnito, our boss in media, announced uh, that let's everyone go outside. He and Mark Baker said, let's go outside. And someone in this room has won that airplane. We're going to go see who won in the tent. Hmm. So everyone goes outside. And it was really interesting. This was Dave Hirschman's idea. He said uh, that Cliff had a, a 747 type rating and a DC-3 type rating and suggested that everyone raise their hands. Or if they're a pilot, first of all, raise their hands. So Colin Stagnito jumped on the tire, Tundra tire of this you know, backcountry beast Cessna 170 and said, all right, everyone who's a pilot, because you have to be a pilot or a student pilot to mm-hmm. win, raise your hand. 
So a lot of people, you know, raised their hand. They said, all right, keep your hand up if you are a pilot and you live in Arizona. So several hands went down because people were visiting from out of state. And, uh, and Cliff's uh, hand remained up along with dozens more. And the next was, okay, if you have flown commercially, keep your hand up. So now we had a handful of hands up. And if you have a 747 rating, keep your hand up. So he had his hand up, and there was another pilot that had his hand up that I ran into the other pilot, Kevin, oh my at Kingman, Arizona, a couple of days later. And he was said, man, I was so close. Oh, no. I was like oh, so guy. close to this. It's like there's two of us <laughs> holding our hands up. It could be me. And then the, yeah. Right. And then the final, uh, the final contender was you had to keep your hand up if you also had a DC-3 type rating. And Cliff, who flew in Alaska and flew tailwheel airplanes and flew the DC-3, wow. had his hand up and just went bonkers when he looked around and saw that he, he was, was the, the only one, one his holding up. his hand oh, up. Oh, that's awesome. It was really super cool. That's it was great. great. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah, he grew up in Alaska, I guess, right? He did. He did. He um, And the last general aviation airplane he had, this is, this is a cool part of the story, he had a Satabria, and he sold the Satabria to be able to afford multi-engine lessons. Oh, my gosh. Way so back. to wow. get that multi-engine yeah. rating, wow. he sold the Satabria, and that that led him to become a professional career pilot. And he was a super, super excited to be able to have a tailwheel airplane that he could do some more backcountry uh, flying in and do some fishing, do a little bit of flying in the outback, that kind of That's thing. That's awesome. Uh, I, in the backcountry, I do think he will keep this airplane and he will fly it. He already had a hangar uh, set up. Uh, by the end of the weekend over wow. at Buckeye, Arizona. Absolutely. That's great. Yep. Yeah. So congrats, Cliff. And sorry to everybody else. But there is a new chance. There is. So at the at the show as well, we announced the new sweepstakes airplane. And keeping it in the Cessna family, it's going to be a 182 and a classic 182, a beautiful early 1958 straight tail 182. Yeah. And it's a 182 Alpha model. And Ian, the reason why uh, we're giving away a 182 in the next year and a half or so is that the same make, model, a year, uh, and paint scheme was on the very first AOPA Pilot magazine in March of 1958. So it's a turquoise, white, and black straight tail 182, as you mentioned, straight tail. And that's going to go through a variety of upgrades, but we painted it first this time. Backwards. And Ian, I got to tell you, this this was a great idea. It really drew a crowd at the Buckeye Air Fair. People were were just attracted to it. It is a cool looking throwback paint scheme. Yeah, it really is cool. I love it. And oh, the yokes, you know, we got the turquoise yokes going turquoise on. Turquoise yokes. That's right. That's right. And the, the turquoise uh, bottom part, the under underside of the aircraft. Yeah. And it's a beautiful color too. It and is it's a great color. Real retro, retro mod is what we're calling it. Yeah. So I love this because I want to know what the interior shop said when they knew we were oh. coming with a fully painted airplane. They must have. Been- <laughs> I bet they weren't happy. <laughs> it was interesting. So I got a chance to pick that airplane up from Gus Heisler at Mastercraft Aircraft Painting in Bisbee, Arizona. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did some ground photos there. Uh, Nikki Britton is the project manager. She lives in California. She's had a Cessna 182 in her family for decades. Mm. So she's a good project manager for this. But I flew it from Bisbee to Buckeye. And it, as you mentioned, Ian, it had one seat in it. Uh, the other three <laughs> seats were out of the airplane. 
And uh, listeners can kind of hear me, you know, with a little bit of a rough voice today. It was nothing but yellow fiberglass batting, you know, inside the airplane. So I might have inhaled a little bit of that fiberglass. (laughs) But the seat that was finished is beautiful. It's a tan seat with a turquoise inset. Mm. And, and the airplane flew pretty good. For me, it, it, it flew straight for me. It needs to have a few more things done to it. The radios were awfully challenging. Oh, yeah. But all that's going to get replaced. But my engine was really strong. And um, the airplane, you know, I would say it, it flew at around 120 knots um, at altitude. Yeah, that sounds that's, about right. It's about right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a 0470 engine, constant speed prop. And it's a and it jumped off the ground. People who are not familiar with this year model 182 should know that the that the tail trim operates differently versus later model 182s. The the whole tail kind of moves, mm-hmm. and the airplane is much lighter. It it yeah. literally jumps off yeah. the ground even at higher density altitudes because it's just they're they're. I guess they're lighter components um, yeah. versus the more recent uh, Skylines. I, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I have flown one of those, and they they are great. I love it. You're right; they're a little slower, right, than the modern ones. Yeah, but tons of useful load, and uh, in general, yeah, a little bit lighter. So yeah, they're nice. This is going to be a fantastic airplane. It's going to be a. It is. I think people are going to really love it. Well, yeah. people love it already, and I'm telling you, it was a magnet around that air show, and and I think for us for APA, it's it was a great idea to paint it first because it is a showpiece. It's beautiful, and we have budgeted. People are going to ask about this. We have budgeted funds to touch up the paint if we need to. So that's something that people might be asking about. And (laughs) I'll tell you a little bit more about what's going on. So right now I delivered it from Buckeye to Kingman, Arizona, to Arturo's Interiors. Arturo is well known at Kingman, Arizona, and he had the other three seats completed. Now it was weird flying an airplane with one seat. That's a four seat. Yeah. I just got to tell you, like it was a jump bizarre. Pilot. Yeah. It was like a jump pilot. But he finished the rest of the seats. He was, he was working on uh, the interior of a Beechcraft Baron, uh, Dornier jet. So you know, and a couple of cars. To be honest with you, too, I found out from Colin Stagnito that we're going to have a, a Garmin panel with a combination of touchscreen avionics, a GT in hmm. 650 Xi as the main navigator, and Garmin's new Navcom radio that we talked about a few episodes ago. The GNC 215 Navcom will be the second radio. But we're going to keep the resto mod kind of looking like the, the 1950s with several of the Garmin GI275 round dial instruments. Very so cool. you know, one will be the attitude and airspeed and, you know, basically your, your flight parameters. The other will give us the directional finding capability and, uh, and the instrument capability of, uh, you know, of a horizontal situation indicator give you a good glide slope and, and, and get you in the RNAV. And then the third is going to be an engine instrument uh, gauge. It's going to be all-round dial. So it'll look like it came out of the 1950s, but it'll have modern capability and color screens. Hmm. Very cool. Exciting. I hope to get to fly it someday. All right. Hey, David. So actually, you mentioned another 182 pilot. That's Dick Braun. Right. The producer and filmmaker behind Flying Boats, which, by the way, you can get on Amazon and I think at a few other places. So after you listen to Dick, make sure to go check out the movie.
Well, thanks for joining us today. We're here at Dirk Brown Gallery, and you are, of course. I am Dirk Brown. So can you tell us a little bit about your gallery and, and flying boat to start out with? Sure. This is a gallery space on Malibu Road in Malibu, California. And I'd say it's a collection of my photography that is taken during film productions and explorations. We exhibit other artists too from time to time. But uh, yeah, we have limited edition offerings, different sizes, like the one behind me, which is uh, almost 100 inches frame. And uh, a lot of them were taken during the production of the film Flying Boat, which is my feature film. And that was a documentary that came out, premiered at Oshkosh, saw it there, very yeah. cool. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen it since, I'm sorry to say, but I'm excited to watch it again soon. Yeah. What was the process like to make that movie? Because I understand it took several years and you can tell in the, by watching the movie that it was, you know, the labor of love that, and you put a lot of time and energy into it, as did all the people involved. So what was that like? Documentary filmmaking is interesting in the way that it's a real discovery in the making. You know, you have an idea for a subject and an idea as to where you want it to go and it, it evolves as you're making it. So during the making of this film, you know, I'd have an idea that was sparked by an interview or a shot that I get or uncovering archival footage and it all kind of just plays to it. Yeah, it was kind of a, a good evolving process until I felt like it was time to get to editing and then that was a whole different, different uh, experience. When you started the movie, did you have an idea of what the finished product was gonna be or did you just go into it thinking, I want to see where this journey takes me or? A little of both. In a sense, it's like, this was the film that I dreamed of making and I hoped to make, and it, it turned out the way I wanted it to. And then, but there were just so many different moments of, that were just fortuitous. And uh, like I said, just discovering new things along the way. People, archival footage, shots, and history, and all kinds of things I learned during the making of it. It pushed in a different direction. So is it your favorite airplane? What inspired you in the beginning to, you know, start out on this endeavor? It would be safe to say it's my favorite airplane. I'm forever inspired by it. I love that it's just so capable. And by looking at one, you can just, it inspires fantasy and you wonder what you can do with one. And to me, that's just offers just limit, limitless potential and possibility. And that's something that spoke to my imagination. And the more I learned about the aircraft, the more it, it intrigued me. And it just kind of feels like a fabled kind of just very special machine. The Albatross has likely been to more places on Earth than any other aircraft. Uh, it can take off and land in open ocean, can cross oceans, it can land on land and also snow and ice. So there's nothing else they can do with what this aircraft can do. And it was built with tremendous strength and it's had so many different lives. It started off as a open ocean search and rescue. It was used by Pan American Airlines. It was the last passenger transport flying boats. They've been used for countless research missions, surf explorations, all kinds of things. So that to me is something really special and they made uh, four unique subjects for the movie. Definitely, it is a very unique airplane. And as you mentioned, it has you know these incredibly unique capabilities that sort of sets it apart. And on top of that, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful airplane. It's, you know, as you can see in the photo behind you, it's gorgeous to look at. So that definitely adds to the romance of, of aviation and that sort of golden age that we think of when we think of the golden age of flying. What was your first introduction to this plane? Like, how did this become your favorite plane? Honestly, it was when I was 18, a good friend of mine introduced it to me and it just never left me. And I just, I would research it. Like I'm, in, I'm interested in unique and rare things and aviation was something I, I loved and just kept growing from there. I always thought I'd, I kind of just had this idea that I'd make a film about it and, and kept, kept the pursuit going. Here we are. So 
Did you become a pilot because of Flying Boat or were you a pilot before or how did that happen? I started making the film before I became a pilot and it was just part of the journey in making this film was getting my pilot's license. So that was a special, special thing to say the least. And I started my training in Connecticut and then finished up in Glenwood Springs and Aston, Colorado, in the high, high mountains. Can you tell us a little bit about the airplane you, you now own and fly? It's a 1960 Cessna 182 Charlie, which is a straight back swept tail they made from 1960 and 61. It's a wonderful plane, it'll land on land and off airport too. Do you take it off airport? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, we have some good backcountry strips around here. Do you have a favorite place to go with it? I like some of the dry lake feds, things like that. And it's exceptional, fun to do. Yeah, it must look nice on film as well. Or do you Definitely. do you make your air, your air, the airplane you own now? Is that a subject for you for your photography, or is it sort of just something you do? A little of both. I mean, I've I've landed on a strip and had my camera with me and enjoyed taking photos of it. Definitely, that makes sense. And we've done a few air to air before. Awesome. Yeah. Speaking of the air to airs, how did you accomplish uh, the air to airs in your movie? Most of the time, I I, I applied. We've used drones a lot of the time and helicopters. So camera system on the nose of the helicopter is as good as it gets. And those are fun for, you know, going in on long distance pursuits and filming. Best machine and, and rig for that. Very sophisticated gimbal with an airy camera. Cool. Yeah. And I'm assuming that you were, of course, along on these. How did you operate the camera during that? Sorry, uh, this might in be the a helicopter, we have controls for the camera and okay. the gimbal inside. So okay. directing that from, from inside the helicopter. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's a challenge and it's rewarding and it's exciting and it's fun, you know? Okay. Uh, just combining flying and having two, two aircraft flying in sync together is just uh, it's a beautiful and special thing to do. Is there a favorite shot or, uh, or a part of the movie that you're most proud of or that was the hardest to get? That's a tough one. I love, you know, some of the, the tropical scenery kind of simulates a dream and I, I, love, I love going to those kinds of places. Uh, those are the places that, you know, are only accessible by this kind of aircraft. That was really special to do. But then, you know, iconic places when we flew around New York City, you know, it's like the significance of that. You know, every aircraft in history has flown that route and uh, they were also made nearby, this aircraft. So they started there and they've gone all over the world and it was significant to, to have, to be able to fly around there. A little bit of a homecoming. Yeah, yeah, it's very exciting. Is there something that you hope viewers, especially pilots, take away from your documentary? I hope it inspires aviation and promotes aviation. I think that a love and an interest in aviation is, is uh, understanding its history and preserving its future and, and being an advocate for aviation. Beyond that, I hope that it appeals to people that know nothing about aviation and flying and, and can enjoy something that's unique and uncover a long lost piece of history. Yeah, it's not a movie that's just for pilots. It's, it appeals to a broader audience. Yeah. What else are you working on right now? Are you working on another documentary, more photography? What's the future hold? Uh, I do photo shoots quite often, and those are, uh, you know, I have an idea and we'll stage those, and those are always fun. Uh, so those are my, my productions and in between film productions. But I'm also a partner in a company called Amphibian Aerospace Industries, and we are remanufacturing the Albatross with uh, twin turbine engines and a modern cockpit. So it's going to be the new, the new Albatross. They're being remanufactured in Northern Territory, Australia, in Darwin. And uh, yeah, we're excited to search and rescue missions and exploration missions are uh, in the future. 
that's incredible. That's going to be really fun. Have you, so the company is, is based here and you're part of it or it's based in Australia? Based in Australia. Based in Australia and in, in Darwin. Yep. Wow. That's another very historic aviation place. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. They bought the plans to the Albatross. Mm -hmm. It's such a perfect design that it didn't need anything to be changed. Just updating these old radial engines with turbine reliable Pratt and Whitney engines and modern cockpit. That is so cool. Where in the process is that? Hope to have them an airworthy one this year. They this year? A, 2024? Uh, yep. They have a few that are uh, old fuselages that are getting restored and then re-outfitted with uh, the turbine. So we're going to start there and then from scratch. That is really, really exciting. Let us know when you when you do that. I will. <laughs> yeah. Darwin is a pretty unique place. Is the plan to, to use it for search and rescue or to use it for fun and, and as a, like... We've demonstration been, aircraft at first or we've been taking orders on them a lot of uh, governments and uh, ngos are our clients uh, and they're they'll be used for search and rescue and this aircraft can bring supplies and rescue people in a much more efficient manner you know a lot of times in places of catastrophe say natural disasters an airport is something that has been destroyed a lot of time during natural disasters mm -hmm. and you know this aircraft can land on the water mm -hmm. so we can back into a beach fill it up, you know, drop off supplies, pick people up, take them out a lot more efficiently than a boat and uh, carry a lot more useful than a helicopter with 10 times the range. So yeah, it's very exciting. It's kind of a little, uh, there's kind of a renaissance of the flying boats. They're coming back third wave. Originally they were passenger transport, long distance, Pan Am commissioned Boeing and Sikorsky. And they were the first to go transatlantic, transpacific. And then in World War II, they built a bunch of runways for bombers and the flying boat for passenger transport became obsolete. And then in the 50s, this is when the Albatross was in use. It was helicopter technology that pushed them out. Mm. But nonetheless, helicopters are wonderful aircraft, but they have 10 times less range and a lot less useful load. So this aircraft can really kind of take whatever can be put in it and it can go anywhere and do anything. That's really, really exciting that it's, that it's coming back as well. Yeah. Do you have any advice you would give to any pilots who are interested in becoming filmmakers? You know, I, I think airplanes in motion is something that's exciting to, to watch and to see and to film. So, you know, as a new aviator, it's fun to just hang out at an airport and kind of watch, watch the motion of an airplane. You know, see it taking off and landing. It's be good to get different angles. And I think that whole combination of filmmaking and learning to fly is a good journey in itself. Yeah, I find a lot of a lot of pilots like photography and, and filming kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, that's true. And we got our special genre of films that are aviation film. Pioneering flight and airplanes has been a wonderful is a wonderful thing. Something to be appreciated. Yeah, definitely. And I do think that even the people who don't necessarily want to be pilots appreciate the beauty of flight, especially when captured in in video form. So back to your flying, what do you have on the future of of your, your flying plans. Do you want to keep flying? Do you, do you like flying out of Santa Monica? Do you think you're going to stay there or keep the plane there? I like the idea of Santa Monica staying open. It's, we're not sure of its state right now, but uh, Santa Monica is a wonderful airport, lots of history, and it, it's the airport that built LA. And I like, I like being around that. And so many film, you know, so many aircraft that have been in films are there, and that's kind of just special. As far as my flying interests, I love I love flying boats and albatrosses, and I like old Cessnas, and I mean, all kinds of airplanes, there's so many. It depends on the mission. Do you have any significant aviation mentors or, or people that have helped you through it? So many mentors in aviation, I and mean, back to that, just about talking about 
you know, love for aviation is understanding the history and being an advocate for aviation in general. I, I find that there are so many people who are passionate and want to tell you about certain tricks and things to know. And it comes down to the flight instructors, to the people at the ramp on the ramp. Uh, everybody who's involved in aviation has been an, an inspiration. And in the making of this film, I'm, I'm forever inspired by some of the characters that I had and their pursuits into getting these aircraft off the ground and airworthy again. Just amazing feats and I'm in awe of it. But I, I find that I meet aviators all the time that are just awesome and interesting and how I have different stories. And I like that there's so many different kinds of aviators, you know, and people have different pursuits and dreams and aspirations as to why they fly. It could be for a career, it could be for pleasure, it could be for so many different things. And that's what's just great about aviation in general. Constantly being, finding new mentors and exciting people. And the camaraderie of it, it's wild because it's such a solo mission in a way, you know, you're up there flying by yourself far away from the ground. And then the camaraderie of the aviation community is just it's special and I like meetups and air shows, things like that. Yeah, doing, great camaraderie. Doing things alone together mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah, but exactly. Yeah, it's fun because everybody does, you know, we all have our different experiences, which are wildly different, but we still had to go through those same milestones. We've all had those same moments of stress in the air. And so it's a, you instantly have something to relate to with other aviators. It's fun to find all, all, all different pilots all around the world and different missions. Not to discount the jet, which is, romantic and amazing to be able to go so fast and so far. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're up high and you don't see as much. Kind of the opposite of that is the flying boat. Mm -hmm. We're going low and slow. Mm -hmm. And of course, bush planes and things. But it's an exploration and you'll be able to see taking landscapes and views that you had no idea existed. And as you're traveling along, it's, it's a mesmerizing experience. Yeah, it's pretty fun. And it is the low and slow life, I think, is the life for me. Because there's nothing like looking down and seeing people actually wave up at you and you're going slow enough that you can actually wave back. I know. So, special thing. It is a special thing. I mean, there's so much emotion that goes through me when you're flying. I, I, you know, you're taking it all in. I think about what I am and who I am and where I've come from or where this is, who built this airplane. I mean, there's, there's so many things that, to appreciate just how I got up here in the sky. Kind of ride the roller coaster of emotion when you fly. Uh, it can be anything from calm and cool and relaxed to, you know, excited to scared and worried and you have to battle through all those emotions to get to the end and land. So aviation is a good metaphor for life. I mean, it's in you know, pursuit of, you know, even getting your licenses takes a lot of effort. And if you want to get it, you have to really be dedicated and there's no way around it. And it's got to be done the right way. And you have respect for the machine and respect for what you're doing. I think that's a good kind of outlook on life as well. I see a lot of parallels in that. And I mean, you know, if you're in the air, you have to come back down. So. You know, it's, you got to make decisions and, mm -hmm. you know, life's about decisions. Totally. So, yeah. you know, are you going to turn around? Or are you going to battle through it? Mm -hmm. It's a good decision. Are you going to go or no go? The question you have to ask yourself every time you get in the airplane, if you're going to go or no go. And landing and tying up the airplane afterwards and walking away and looking back at it is a special thing. It's yeah. uh, the connection to the machine and the craft is like nothing else. Flying Boat is my feature-length documentary, and it is about a handful of pilots and mechanics that are still flying and maintaining the last remaining examples of the Grumman Albatross, a large hulled seaplane from a long-lost era of romance and adventure. And it's now streaming and available on DVD on Amazon Prime, as well as United Airlines, Emirates Airlines, and Korean Air Flights. The DVD exclusively has a 21-minute behind-the-scenes film as well.
flying boats are interesting. People definitely have a love for those, don't they? It's like a whole sort of crew of people who just have this fascination with them and just love them. Well, and and it needs a crew of people because, uh, you know, to show <laughs> love true. and respect for the Grumman Albatross experience. And that's what that whole movie is about, the experience and the dedication of, of this cadre of uh, folks who just want to keep history alive. That airplane, that the one that, that Dirk was talking about, they, they resurrected it from Tucson, Arizona, from a boneyard. Amazing amount of work. And, yeah, yeah folks who are listening and want to buy photos, and there are some beautiful pictures. I would, I would suggest they go to DirkBraunGallery.com, and you can you know, purchase these uh, limited edition prints in a variety of sizes. And, and I've seen them in person. It's a, it would be a beautiful addition to any, any home or hangar. All right. Very cool. Hey, that's all the time we have. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangar talk or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We'll see you. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly. <laughs>